Good morning to each of you. I had one simple goal today. It was to make it through adult Sunday school unscathed. <laughs> and, uh, if you run in adult Sunday school, you know exactly why I'm saying that. And I stand before you unscathed, so I'm grateful. This is now gravy, getting back to God's word and preaching the glorious gospel. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Let me begin by setting the context for what we're going to consider this morning. Uh, eight months ago, give or take a few weeks, we began this series, studying this book, this letter together. And at the time, I gave you a very simple outline. I think I've shown it to you three or four times since then. I want to show it to you once more, and then we're going to lay it to rest. But it helps set the stage for, uh, for the verses we're going to consider together in a few moments. So if Teresa can bring up the next slide, there you have it. There's the outline that we have been following. Uh, the book, it's lengthy, 16 chapters, but it really isn't that complicated in its structure. You have an introduction, first nine verses of chapter one, and you guessed it, you've got a conclusion. Chapter 16, we're almost there. And in between, you have two enormous sections. In the first, Paul responds to a report, a report he has received from a woman named Chloe. And she has reported on the church, the goings-on, the happenings in the church, and Paul responds. And then in the second section, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, right through to the end of chapter 15, he responds to a letter. Evidently, some or perhaps the whole church got together, penned this letter, that is the church at Corinth, sent it off to Paul. They raise a number of questions, issues in this letter, and Paul responds. So there's the letter, right? Introduction, conclusion. Chloe, I've heard from Chloe, her people, they've come, they've told me some things about what is going on there in the church, some not so pleasant things. Here's my response. The letter, I got it, I received it, delivered by hand. There it is in front of me. Here's my response, section number two. So that's the, the general outline. Next slide, Teresa. His response to the report, exactly what does he say? He addresses four disturbing problems. Quarreling in the first few chapters. Boasting in chapter five. Defrauding chapter six. And sinning chapter 6 as well, the rest of that chapter. And so for those of you who have been here for some time, you remember all that just like it was yesterday, right? That's the first section. Paul speaking to these four disturbing problems. And in the second section, the last slide we're going to consider together, he speaks to five perplexing issues raised in that letter that he has received. Marriage, culture, Worship, spirituality, and number five, the resurrection, which brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's the structure. There's the gist of the letter in its entirety. We're tracking with the Apostle Paul, following his line of thought, following his argument throughout. He is emphasizing, he is placing great stress on the gospel 
what it means to be made one with the Lord Jesus, Jesus who has baptized us with the Spirit into his body. And because we are part of the body of Christ, Christ has become to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And because we're one with Christ, we've been called to follow him and to build one another up in love. And so we have that 13th chapter, perhaps the summit, the pinnacle of the entire book in which he describes love and how it is to be displayed in our lives. And so we've been honing in on the gospel as Paul brings it into play time and time and time again as he deals with these issues and problems and circumstances plaguing the church at Corinth. Okay, you can take those slides away, Teresa. There was one more, but we're not going to bother with it this morning. Maybe next week. For now, we're going to focus on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our chief concern today, verses 12 through more or less 22, 23, and then 29 to 34. Those are the verses we're chiefly concerned with, but I'm going to begin reading all the way back in verse 1, as far as verse 34. Follow Paul as he builds his argument. Try to weave together and knit together the different themes and the logic in his thinking and in his argument. And here it is now, the word of the Lord. Now, I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? Of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Last Lord's Day, we look together at the first 11 verses. There, Paul reminds the Corinthians of what he had preached when he was with them and of what they had received. Plenty, undoubtedly, but of first importance, of pivotal importance, central to the faith, fundamental to the gospel. Here is what Paul preached, and here is what they received, that Christ died for our sins. It's atonement, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, the righteous Christ himself bearing the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day of first importance. It is what I preach to you. It is what you believed you received. It raises, however, a perplexing problem. Paul gets to it in verse 12, having laid that very important foundation. Now, if Christ is proclaimed, so it is what I proclaimed, Christ's resurrection, and it is what you received and believed. Now, if that is true, Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then pray tell. How is it possible? How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. And Paul basically now in the remainder of the chapter seeks to correct that element, significant, insignificant, apparently significant enough that he has to speak to the issue, this contingent within the church at Corinth, those who have received the apostolic preaching and central to that apostolic preaching, Christ was Crucified, Christ was buried, Christ was raised. We received it, we believe it. And yet who now deny the resurrection of the dead? 
the future resurrection. Paul responds to this throughout chapter 15. We are going just to narrow our focus today to his response as it's found in verses 12 through to 23 and then pick it up again in 29 through to 34. Next Sunday, we'll come back and we'll fill in that gap. The Sunday after that, we'll pick it up in verse 35 and keep going. But for now, we're very interested in his response, how he's going to handle these people in the church at Corinth. Those who, again, be very clear, these are not unbelievers, or at least not professing unbelievers. These are professing believers. We've not entered the realm of apologetics. He's not going to give a defense for the resurrection for some neighbor who denies God, denies sin, denies the Lord Jesus. That's not where he's going with this. He is speaking to professing believers. He is speaking to those who have actually received his teaching. And central to that teaching, Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. And yet now they actually deny that there is a future resurrection of the dead. Verses 12 through 22. 223 verses 29 through 34 Paul responds by showing them three things all right have you got that you're with me you understand the problem you understand the larger context you see where he's going here now he's going to respond to these people and he wants them to see three things number one and for using the sermon notes here's an opportunity for you to fill in a couple of blanks As I always say, it doesn't get any more exciting than that, does it? The absurdity of their position. That's the first thing he shows them. You might even put in there the absolute absurdity of their position. Uh, We don't do that much today. We're not allowed to do that because it's not considered to be nice to show people the absurdity of their position. We live in a day of equality and in which everyone is entitled to their opinion, no matter how ridiculous that opinion is. And I have to affirm you in your opinion. You need to affirm me in our opinion. I caught caught a glimpse. I didn't read the article. Maybe I should have. A newspaper article this past week. Flat earthers. Flat earthers gather from around the globe in Auckland. <laughs> All right. That is absurd. And I don't care who I offend in saying that. Well, this is the angle Paul's coming from. He's not going to make any friends here. He's not looking to influence people. He's not looking to be numbered among them and impress them. He's coming after them now. And his point, the first thing he wants to show them is, I'm tempted to use a word, but I won't because I don't want to scandalize any of the young ones. He is, he is determined to show them how foolish their position is. It is absolutely absurd. And he makes eight points. And we are going to run through these quickly, quickly, quickly. All right? Number one. Number one. We declare Christ is raised from the dead. You received that message and you claim to believe it. Yet at the same time, you deny that there is a future resurrection of the dead. Number one, if that is what you believe, please understand you are denying Christ's resurrection. That's how absurd this is. 
to deny that there is a resurrection of the dead, to deny that there's a future resurrection, that great judgment at the coming of Christ, if that's really what you think, then please understand that although you profess to believe in Christ's resurrection, in actual fact, you don't. You have denied the resurrection of Christ. You say there's no resurrection of the dead, yet you say you believe in Christ's resurrection. You can't believe in Christ's resurrection and not believe in the future resurrection of the dead. Why? Because Christ and his people are one. And Christ's resurrection and his people's resurrection are one. To deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny the resurrection of Christ, which you say you believe. This is downright absurd, folks. That's his first point. Second point is this. They're undermining the apostles preaching. You get it in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Again, you say, just follow the logic. It's not complicated. You say there's no resurrection of the dead. In so doing, you deny Christ's resurrection. And yet the message of Christ's resurrection is precisely what we proclaim. It's what we preached when we were with you. It is what we preach everywhere we go. It is what I preached as I set out on my apostolic ministry and I've never deviated from it. And it is what I will preach until the Lord calls me home. And so please understand now by denying that future resurrection, you are actually undermining the apostolic preaching. Thirdly, they are nullifying their own faith. That's there in verse 14 as well. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Again, you say there is no resurrection, but Christ and his people are one. Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of his people, they're one. And so if you're denying the future resurrection, you are therefore, whether you acknowledge it or not, you are denying the resurrection of Christ. And yet the message of Christ's resurrection is precisely what you received from us and what you profess to believe. This makes no sense. This is an absurdity. You are denying, invalidating, nullifying your own faith. This fourth point is this. They are, by denying the resurrection of the dead, Accusing the apostles of misrepresenting God. It takes us into the 15th verse. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God. That he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised. Not even Christ has been raised. You say there's no resurrection of the dead. In so doing, you deny Christ's resurrection. That means God did not raise Christ from the dead, yet we preach that God raised Christ from the dead. We testified to it. And so in effect, you are actually accusing us of misrepresenting God. Number five, they are destroying the gospel. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And please, 
please do not miss the next phrase. And you are still in your sins. There's no atonement. You say there's no resurrection from the dead. In so doing, you deny Christ's resurrection. That means God did not raise Christ from the dead. That means Christ is still dead. That means there is no atonement for sin. That means you're still in your sins. That means there is no gospel. You have, in effect, destroyed the gospel. Number six, they're condemning those who have died. It builds, 19th verse, 18th verse. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Because you see, if there is no future resurrection of the dead, well, that means that Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, that means he's still dead. And if he's still dead, that means there's no atonement for sins. And if there is no atonement for sins, then everybody's still in their sins. And that therefore means that those who've already died, who profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus, they've actually perished. They're lost. There is no hope for them. You have condemned them to perpetual damnation. Number seven. They are robbing themselves of all hope. Verse 19. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ. If it's only got to do with this life. If we don't have a resurrected Christ, we don't have a redeemer. We're still dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, we are of all people most to be pitied. There is absolutely no hope. This life is ultimately pointless. This life is ultimately meaningless. And there is no hope for sinners before a holy God. And number eight, the final point. They are making a mockery of their suffering. A mockery of their suffering. Skip all the way now to verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized? Now, here's an interesting statement. On behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. They are making a mockery of their suffering. Now, I know there's a very difficult phrase in there, and I can't skip over it, can I? All right? Way back there in verse 29, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? What does that expression mean? Three possibilities. The first possibility is this, that this is some sort of baptism on behalf of other people who have already died. And so maybe I had an aunt who died and she was never baptized as a believer and maybe never even made a profession of faith. Well, now the church is going to baptize me vicariously on her behalf. So you see that in the Mormon church, right? 
Church of Latter-day Saints, they'll do that. They baptism on behalf of the dead. And that's why they're so preoccupied with genealogies and all that kind of thing, right? So that's one possibility as you look at the text. The second possibility is this. Well, this is some sort of baptism on behalf of someone who was close to death. And so they're really ill or they're really advanced in, in years and death is knocking at the door and they're physically unable to make it to the church gathering, physically unable to make it down to the river, over the lake or whatever the case may be. And so someone steps in and is baptized on their behalf. Possible interpretation. Or the third possibility and where I most definitely lean is this. This is some sort of baptism as Paul speaks and put it in the larger context of the verses around it. It is being baptized. When Paul speaks of being baptized on behalf of the dead, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf, on behalf of the dead? It is to be baptized with the full awareness that you are embarking on a life that can only be described as death. And that's why in the context, Paul immediately goes on to say, why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. I'm a dead man walking. My, my, my years, days, months are numbered in the hands of the Lord. Sure, he numbers the hairs upon my head. He knows. He knows when my time will come and the means by which it will come. But uh, I, I, I'm a dead man walking. There's a sentence of death over my head. That may be what he means. Or it could simply mean this, well, I'm a dead man walking and that I die of his self. I've taken up the cross and I follow the Lord Jesus and I'm a disciple and I, I deny what I want. I deny my dreams, my goals, my wishes, my desires. Or it may simply mean this, I die every day, meaning by identifying with Christ and having identified with him publicly through baptism, I'm inviting all sorts of problems. I'm inviting all sorts of dangers. I am inviting all sorts of persecution. Verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Was he literally in the arena? The Colosseum, so to speak, with literal animals? We don't know. Or is he describing his human oppressors? Or is he describing demonic activity? We don't know for certain, but the reality is this, that Paul's life was a death, a daily death. Because of why? His identity with the Lord Jesus. And so put, that, put this in the context then and follow his reasoning. You deny a future resurrection. And in denying your future resurrection, again, whether you get it or not, it's true. You are denying de facto the resurrection of Christ. And if you deny the resurrection of Christ, Christ is still dead. And if Christ is still dead, there's no atonement for sins. And there's no atonement for sins. You're a sinner. You're condemned. There's no hope for you. Then pray tell, why are you being baptized and inviting so much trouble into your life? Why are you identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ and becoming the object of such hostility and enmity and persecution? His point is what? That's absurd. Who goes looking for that kind of trouble for something that is actually ultimately meaningless? And so you put all of those eight points together. I sure hope you got the punchline by now, don't you? The absolute absurdity of their position. It makes no sense. 
Paul shows that to them graciously, pastorally. Oh, but he hits them front on, does he not? And he does not withhold any punches. He makes it clear that from his perspective, they are being downright foolish in denying the resurrection of the dead. Second thing he shows them is this, and it's closely associated, obviously, with the first, the certainty of the resurrection. And we skipped over these verses, back to verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So this is the fact. This is what we preached and I think going back to the opening section, those first 11 verses, that's why Paul belabors his appearances. That he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then the other disciples. 500 people at one time. James, the apostles, me as well. And so all of these people saw the resurrected, the risen Lord. And so in fact, Christ has been raised. It's an historical reality. You can't deny it. And it is front and center to the apostolic witness. It is what we are preaching and it is of first importance. And so in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For, now he's going to explain what that means. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Well, why is he the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? For, as by a man, it's Adam, doesn't name him, but it's obviously Adam. For as by a man came death. Comparison, by a man, Jesus Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I know we don't talk about first fruits, but it's an important biblical motif goes all the way back to Exodus 23, the nation of Israel, annually. Whenever there was, there was a harvest, what would they do? They'd bring the first fruits. And they would offer the first fruits to the Lord. And by offering the first fruits, they were offering the entire harvest. Because the first fruits was representative of the whole. Do you see the parallel? Christ's resurrection is the first fruit. It represents the whole harvest. Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of his people ushering in eternal life. They are not two separate events. They are two episodes of the same event. He is the first fruits of the coming resurrection. It is most definitely going to happen because the first fruits is the pledge of the whole. Well, how can I be so certain of that? He goes on to explain it deeply theological as we get into verses uh, 21 and 22. And he makes this comparison between Adam and Christ. Notice four things. Just as Adam is the head of his people, so Christ is the head of his people. And so humanity, the entire human race, has a head. And his name is Adam. He is the federal head representative of every human being who's ever lived. But there's another head, another man, Jesus Christ. Go all the way back to chapter 12, verse 13. And this man has baptized us with the Holy Spirit into his body. 
We are members of his body. The body has a head and the head is Jesus Christ. And so just as Adam acted as man's head and representative in the garden, so too Jesus Christ acts as the head, the representative of all those who are one with him, members of his body. Notice secondly, just as Adam's disobedience is counted to all who are in Adam, so Christ's obedience, his perfect life and his substitutionary death, his obedience is counted to all who are in him, one with him. Just as Adam's people are condemned in him, so Christ's people are justified in him. And notice lastly, just as Adam's people incur eternal death through him, so Christ's people incur, inherit eternal life through him. There is an organic unity between Christ and his people, and it cannot be severed. It cannot be separated. He has taken hold of his people by means of the Holy Spirit. And you've heard me say it, I don't know how many times, we have taken hold of him through faith. And these are the marriage bonds that knit us together in an indissoluble union. By virtue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are members of his body. And because we are members of his body, what he has done, is now reckoned to be ours. If you're a Christian, guess what? You died upon Calvary's cross, as far as God is concerned. You were buried and you rose again. Not you in and of yourself, but you because you are now one, as far as God is concerned, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, what Christ has done is reckoned to be yours. Guess what? Christ is righteous. Guess what that makes you? Righteous. He is holy and set apart. Guess what that makes you? Holy and set apart. He is a son. Guess what that makes you? An adopted son, child of God. All of these blessings and gifts and privileges that God has for us come to us by virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one with him, an organic unity. And therefore, all that is Christ's is ours. All that he acquired by virtue of his mediatorship, what he did on earth, is now ours because we're one with him. How can you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Whoa, I, I, can you imagine Paul? I don't know, maybe there's a reading too much between the lines. But can you imagine when he got this letter from the church at Corinth and this question comes up, hey, there's some here who say there's no resurrection from the dead. He probably fell right off his stool. If he was sitting on a stool, off he'd go, bang his head on the floor. What? Like you see him with the little ink and feather or whatever, he's just throwing it up in the air. It's, oh, what's going on here? This makes no sense. You don't know who you are. You know the fundamentals of the gospel. You're one with Christ. He rose from the dead. Guess what? He's the first fruits of a coming resurrection. You can't deny the future without denying the past. And it would be absolutely absurd to attempt to do so. Oh, the certainty of their resurrection. And then he shows them a third thing quickly. The gravity, the weightiness, if you like, 
of their deception. Verse 33, do not be deceived. I don't know who's deceived you. Maybe these Gnostics running around, dualists, some kind of philosophers who tell you that the, you know, the physical is evil and the spiritual is good, so there can't be any future resurrection because the body is icky. The body's just going to disappear. It'll become dust, and we're just going to float around in some ethereal experience, just our souls, just our spirits, because that's the only thing that's good. Maybe that's what's going on there. I don't know, but someone's deceiving you. Bad company ruins good morals. Stop hanging out with them. It's that simple. Wake up from your drunken stupor. He's not very nice, is he? Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And here we see the bigger problem in the church at Corinth, don't we? It goes back to the central issue, the main theme. This is a church in turmoil. The church in turmoil, why? Because they've lost sight of the gospel. They've lost sight of their identity in the Lord Jesus. And they've turned spirituality into something that's self-seeking. They're, they're after status. They're after notoriety. They're after superiority. And so there are some going all the way back to chapter one. Well, I follow so-and-so. I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. I follow Jesus. I follow him. I follow him. And they're identifying with these human leaders, thinking that somehow it, it, it heightens their status and increases their spirituality. In chapter 5, they're exercising liberty, aren't they? We've got unbelievable sin in our midst in the church. That's something, it's unspeakable. And we're not doing anything about it. Oh, Christian liberty, right? No, oh, we're showing just how spiritual we are by not dealing with this. It doesn't really matter what you do in the body anyway. As long as we're spiritual and our souls are right with God, they come into chapter 8, and what are they doing? They're going up to the temples, the pagan temples, and they're partaking of those idolatrous feasts. What does it matter? We can do this. We know they aren't real gods. Makes no difference. Uh, this is a, a secret knowledge that I have. God has revealed this to me, and it just shows how super spiritual I am. And so I can go up there, no problem. It doesn't contaminate me, and I don't care what anybody else thinks. In chapter 7 is why they're practicing asceticism. I'm not going to get married. I am married, I'm going to get divorced. And I get divorced, why? Because uh, sexual intimacy, the marital bed, well, it's a bad thing. Because you know, the physical, the physical is inherently evil, right? I know the spiritual is good. And so you have this such confusion in this church. Remember, they, 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 this, they, they've just twisted what it means to be spiritual. And I think even now coming to chapter 15, this might be at the heart of the issue. The issue is this, some are saying, I'm already raised from the dead. I've already arrived. I'm already raised. Something stupendous and miraculous and phenomenal has happened. I'm on a higher plane, plateau, level, or whatever. And Paul's point is what? No, no, you're deceived, my friends. You claim to have deeper spirituality, but in actual fact, you have no knowledge. No knowledge, he says in verse 34, meaning no real experience of God. You have fallen under some kind of sick delusion. And quickly, before it's too late, you need to wake up from your drunken stupor. That is the third thing he shows them, the gravity of their deception. As we wrap it up, I want to take a very simple doctrine from these verses. Simple in that it is not difficult to understand. Profound in terms of the myriad of implications and applications. The doctrine is this. The resurrection, and Paul is making this clear, tells me 
it tells me that Christ has paid for my sins and therefore I have eternal life. I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection, Christ's resurrection tells me, testifies to me, confirms to me beyond any shadow of a doubt that Christ has paid once and for all fully and finally for my sins and therefore I have eternal life. It speaks to three people. It speaks to a lot of people. Three people I want to speak to and you may fall into one of these categories. It speaks to the unbeliever. Right? And so friend, you could be here. Well, you are here, obviously. And it may very well be you're not a believer. Uh, you're not a Christian. Spirit of God has never taken hold of you and you've certainly never taken hold of the Lord Jesus through faith. You, what I've been saying this morning has been next to gibberish to you. And you're having some difficulty making some sense of it. Well, here's what you need to take away, my friend. The resurrection tells me, I'm proclaiming to you, it tells me, Christ's resurrection, that he has paid for my sins and therefore I have eternal life. If you do not believe in him, the opposite is true. You have no forgiveness of your sins and you do not have eternal life. And God's command to you is, it is straightforward. It is beautiful in its simplicity, right? It is uttered with such love and compassion and yet also coupled with unbelievable authority. And it is this, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must see your sins. You must see the Lord Jesus dying for each of your sins. See him dying for your anger. Your little temper tantrums. See him dying for all that. See him dying for your lust. What goes on in that mind of yours? See him dying for your greed, for your impatience, your unfaithfulness, your stubbornness, your moral failures, your unkind words and unkind deeds, your love of ease. Oh, see him dying for your waywardness. And understand, that the Lord Jesus Christ died at Calvary's cross for sinners. And understand that God's command to you is to turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus and know that having believed in the Lord Jesus, Christ has been raised from the dead and his resurrection from the dead is the seal and testimony that God has forgiven the sins of all those who have received Christ himself. By speaking to you unbelievers, and the command again is very simple, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm speaking secondly to believers here and believers in particular perhaps who have been a little wayward of late. I don't know where you've been, uh, but you know where you've been and it uh, hasn't been pretty and it hasn't been a, a good place. You need to hear this doctrine. The resurrection tells me that Christ has paid for my sins and therefore I have eternal life. And that doctrine by the Spirit of God must bring to you renewed confession and repentance and humiliation before God. And you need to hear this. You need to hear it and understand the spirit in which it is uttered and the love that just, I pray, coats it. You need to wake up from your drunken stupor. You need to wake up from your drunken stupor. If you're living in sin, claiming to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, and you have believed in the Lord Jesus for some time, but uh, of late, yeah, I'm doing whatever I want to do. Here, there, everywhere, doing this. Oh, my friend, wake up from your drunken stupor. Turn again to the Lord Jesus. See a crucified Christ dying for your sins. 
all of those sins washed away through faith in him and take to heart again the promise of God's word if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the third person I want to speak to, the believer as well, and uh, you've been down in the dumps of late. Maybe you're not way down, maybe you're sort of surface down, but you're down. And the problems are mounting. And as you look around at this world, your delusion is increasing. And uh, you're feeling a little worried, you're feeling a little afraid, you're feeling a little hopeless. Oh, this doctrine is for you. The resurrection tells me that Christ has paid for my sins, and therefore I have eternal life. That as I gaze upon Calvary's cross, do you know what I behold? I see each of my sins, each of my sins running down the drain, if you like, of he who is Christ. All of my sins down the drain. All of my sins born in his body on that cruel cross. And again, I see a full and final atonement and a sure and certain forgiveness. And this instills in me such hope. Oh, it makes my faith more active. And it makes my hope more fervent. Because I realize whatever's going on in this life, whatever has happened in this life, and whatever comes in this life, it's not the final word. Why? Because the resurrection, Christ's resurrection, tells me that Christ has paid the penalty for my sins. And I have what? Eternal life. Eternal life. John Calvin wrote centuries ago, a moment is long if we look at the things around us. We'd all agree with that. A moment is long if we look at the things around us. But once we raise our minds to heaven, a thousand years begin to be like a moment. The hope of the resurrection keeps us from losing heart. In the words of Job of old, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Oh, there is the kindling of faith. There is the kindling of hope. Dare I say, that is the kindling of love. As we see with fresh eyes, Christ's resurrection tells me that Christ has paid for my sins and therefore I have eternal life. Our Father, may your word come alive to us this day by your spirit. You know the need of each one, the condition of each one. And we do pray that your word would comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. This might be the salvation, the day of salvation for some man, some woman, some boy, some girl. As they turn from their sins and their open rebellion and defiance. And they find such wondrous love and compassion and forgiveness by means of the cross and Christ's finished work there. May each of us be strengthened and renewed in our faith, hope, and love. And again, we ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom and the glory of your name. And in that matchless name of Christ, we do pray. Amen.